Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 128th show. Uh, today's guest is best-selling author Julie Henry from Wisdom from the Wild, which I really enjoyed the title and I loved the book. And so I'm so excited to have you here. So. Julie, let's start off with, give us about your professional background. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's wonderful to be here with you and with everybody. So, um, you know, I, I'm a kid from Chicago, and went when I went to college, I was really interested in science, so I was studying zoology, but I grew up with a father who was a leadership development uh, guru, and my mom was a teacher. So professionally, I always knew I would stitch all of those together, but I had to start working at my favorite place, so I got a job at Shedd Aquarium in downtown Chicago, but from a very young point of my career, like basically day one, I was always saying, there are ways that we can reach out to businesses and bring them into our world because it's interesting. Like if you're going to do a retreat or a leadership training, why don't you come here rather than renting a room at your local hotel? And I can use animals to help teach you lessons. And so that's spurred my entire career, both working inside zoos and aquariums. And then I, I jumped out in 2008 to start my own business and still use that to drive my passion, helping people drive and survive change. Clearly, people have been saying about coworkers, so why are they such a snake or any of those things, <laughs> right? Uh, he's like right. a gorilla. He's an angel, but whatever. <laughs> so why did you write this book? And, and, and I thought it was great, great title and everything. And I thought the information was really interesting. Your background was. So why did you write this book? Well, thank you. You know, I wrote it because it was just time. It started as my college senior year thesis in 1996. And after 25 years, I had enough street cred. I had enough time with different clients and in different corp, uh, industries, and I had enough time with different animals. So it was time to put it all together and reach audiences that I could never reach if I just tried to keep speaking about it myself. So now it's kind of weird. You know, I walk through an airport like, well, someone's buying my book in Austin, Texas. And uh, I hope <laughs> that they that they learn from it. And they're inspired as I am by, by cheetahs. And it's kind of a weird thing, but I'm really happy to have it out there. Well, I, and, and I learned about a lot of different animals I never even heard of before. <laughs> so what made you want to major in zoology and what kind of people focus on this kind of profession? <laughs> I was in, it's funny, I just reached out to my high school AP biology teacher and sent him the book a couple of months ago. And I said, you were my inspiration. We dissected a shark in your class when I was a junior in high school. And I thought, maybe I want to be a doctor. And then I interned as a doctor. We're like, well, that's super boring. I don't want to do that. Um, and I'm really not that good at research, but I still love animals. So I had to go to college and study what I loved and then figure out how to make a career from it. Um, so most people in zoology, I would say that they go the doctor route or they go the traditional research route. Um, but I was lucky in college that I had enough professors who understood I had to do it in a different way, a creative way. And science is still my core. You know, I look at it like at the spokes of a wheel, but at my heart, I'm a science geek. I'm a nature girl. And you'll find me out. If you can't find me, look outdoors. Are your kids like that too? <laughs> yep. Yep. I got uh, eighth and 10th grade and pretty much I can find them out at, you know, in the mud pile or up a tree. 
There you go. There you go. You mentioned you visited more than 60 zoos. Do you, I'm just curious before we get into the book, do you have a favorite zoo? You know, it has to be the ones that I worked at because they're part of my soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so Cincinnati Zoo and Bush Gardens, which is a zoo slash uh, roller coaster park, and then Shedd Aquarium and Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota, Florida. They're my favorite because they just uh, they're they're special. The people are special. The animals are special. You know, I, I live like within walking distance of the Philadelphia Zoo, and I haven't been there in a long time, but because <laughs> I think you always think of just bring your kids there, but not yeah. you yourself just going and enjoying the day there yourself. You mentioned, uh, you wrote that the w- wolf is your favorite animal. What can mm-hmm. you, what can you, why is that wolf? Why is the wolf your favorite? And what can <laughs> we learn from the wolf? Um, my, the wolf is my favorite because I think they're my spirit animal for like, lack of a better word. You know, they're great at being a loner. They're great at being a pack. Um, there, there's some humor in there and there's some bold charging forward. We're just going to do this. You know, one of my favorite quotes is throw me to the wolves and I'll come back leading the pack. And that's (laughs) just how I live my life personally and professionally. So I think we can learn from wolves to, uh, to keep going. I mean, even just what they've been through being reintroduced in Yellowstone and everything that like that. Um, but then, you know, you need your friends and then you need your alone time. And that's how I think we are as humans. Why are they able to get along in a pack? Um, you know, that's just how they're built to survive, you know, like, like there are some animals that are built to be more loners, and then there are that need teamwork and wolves are one of those animals that that uh, teamwork helps them through their hunting through their, you know, caring for young through their finding shelter and that's, and there's some certainly competition, just like there is in the human world among wolves, but you know that keeps them healthy too. you know, it keeps them moving in the right direction. That's real. I thought it was really interesting. Why did you write that sea turtles are amazing and what can we learn from the steady deliberate pace of a sea turtle? <laughs> and they live forever, right? They're like, like they can live like to 150, 200 years old. Yeah, super long lived animals. And if you look at a sea turtle skull, you know, if you're listening to this and not watching me, you know, I'm holding my, it's at least as big as our heads, right? The sea turtle skull and their brain is about the size maybe of a walnut. I no mean, kidding. So- yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you think of an animal, like part of my, one of my big messages from the book is to lean in and trust your gut as a leader. And to me, this sea turtle who can survive for at least a hundred years, um, you know, they're literally trusting their gut because they're not overthinking things. Their brain is about this big. Uh, so they're a fabulous example to me about what it's like to lean in instinctually, um, you know, not rely on GPS when you're navigating through the ocean for thousands and thousands of miles to really lean into your purpose. And that's what we need to do as leaders. I, you know, I wondered, does that mean the smaller brain you have, the longer you'll live? (laughs) That would be a really interesting scientific study. I don't know if that correlates. (laughs) You wrote that when you were a kid, you were shy, uh, shy and afraid to take chances. What made you more adventurous? And did the animals impact that? Uh, yes, I would say they did. You know, when I went to college, I realized very quickly that I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are really passionate about their own things. And if I don't start speaking up for myself, I'm going to just blend in with the crowd. And I just don't want to do that. Um, and then, you know, realizing that the animals had, uh, a way of inspiring me and a way of inspiring others, then, uh, you know, it was just time. It was just time to be passionate. What's the biggest lesson or even lessons nature has taught you so far? 
The biggest lesson that nature has taught me so far is that we are all designed for our own unique niche and we need people who are different around us to be good at what they are good to at too. And we know this instinctually or we know this intuitively and it's really hard to do because it's so much more comfortable to be surrounded by people that think the same as us or like the same things. But it's when you're surrounded by people that are thinking differently or challenging you, that's when magic happens, both in business and in life. And when you get comfortable being uncomfortable, um, that's where things can really start to change. And that's what nature's taught me. How's, how have animals corrected or made changes themselves due to climate change? Like what have, what's been your observations about how they've dealt with climate change that we could learn about how to deal with climate change? Well, you know, some of the animals haven't been able to adapt because it's happening so fast. So if they have a chance to adapt, then they can maybe, you know, build their home in a different space or, you know, structure their their um, activity differently. But we've got to, it's going so fast that we're not able to adapt quickly. And I think that's what humans are, we're learning that too, that we can't just put off planning forever. We've got to plan for the inevitable changes that are happening in our environment. And that's the way that we can um, coexist with the way our world is evolving. What's the biggest, um, you mentioned uh, in Arthur, the author's notes in the beginning of the book, uh, notes about the pandemic. What did you learn from the pandemic, especially since it emanated from the animal kingdom? And how did it change you professionally going forward? I love this question. It's really, it's really smart of you to, to think about this. I mean, I think two things come to mind is that we are inextricably linked with the natural world. You know, we are not separate from it. That's why I love how businesses are evolving and thinking about, you know, how can we lend to businesses that have a corporate social responsibility program already in place? You know, how can we be proactive? You know, right now I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm working with lime plants. I've got my, if I could show you my steel-toed boots, I would show you my steel-toed boots. But, you know, I'm going into an industry that's got a mine and a quarry and they have to be proactive and think about their environmental impacts. And they are, but at the other side, we use limestone to, you know, clean out the smokestacks and to purify water. So it's how we live on the earth. It's just how can we coexist? And so that was the first thing from the pandemic. And then the second is a colleague of mine actually, you know, had said, which I wrote in the book, uh, the pandemic is like a forest fire. It's killing off not only things on the earth, but also the way that we have lived so far and interacted so far. But forest fires are, are a part of how the world has maintained its healthy balance. And so, you know, you ask anybody right now, I mean, one of my favorite questions is what are you not consciously adding back into your life that you realized you didn't need through the pandemic? And so we're changing um, personally and professionally. And have you, have you seen, did this affect animals at all? Uh, or especially like when you're working at the zoo, did the pandemic affect the way animals interact with humans? Well, you know, in zoos and aquariums, it certainly did because some of the animals got COVID. And so, um, you know, keepers had to be aware, well aware of that. We had to, you know, I'm not working at a zoo and aquarium right now, but my colleagues who are working at zoos and aquariums had to um, put in extra distance, you know, social distancing with the animals that they were taking care of because they got COVID too. And so again, that's just proof that, yeah, sure, you know, where wherever this virus comes from, came from, and of course, that's a little bit of controversy, but there are natural origins to it, and certainly it still affects animals today. The animals, did they get used to, especially in the zoos you worked at, 
with people not being there every day to take care of them uh, and interact with them? Like, did they miss the social interaction themselves? Because, you know, we see a lot of people not going back to work or they want to work from home. And I'm wondering, what did you learn from the animals that allow us to think about Kim, how we can cope with this? Should we still be able to work from home as opposed to going in? What happens to corporate culture? So what did you learn for, about this and what did you uh, observe? Yeah, yeah, you know, the, um, well, a couple of things, you know, in every, well, I won't say in every, but in many, many industries um, across the world, you know, we figured out very quickly the people that stayed home. And then we figured out the people that couldn't stay home, you know, the people who were driving the buses and and working at the grocery stores, et cetera. And so there were people who had to go to work at zoos and aquariums. And so they were essential staff. And so um, part of that stress of, of figuring out rotating schedules, working on a, a little skeleton crew, having to meet cross-trained, you know, the people that used to drive the train at the zoo, well, now they're helping to take care of, um, you know, the sloths and the monkeys uh, because that's the way they can still have a job, but also that's where the need is. And so that was a stress. Um, and then, yeah, the, in many cases, I've heard many, many stories about the animals missing the human interaction of the guests every day. And, and so the keepers had to think about ways to um, not necessarily replace that, but still provide that for the animals. So that was a definite evolution and still continues to be felt. And then just like every other industry, looking at how you build back that corporate culture, you know, so the people who now are working with animals, now they're you know, going back in their other job, like, well, I kind of miss working with the animals. And as we're looking at our corporate environments and corporate culture, we, you know, what I'm hearing from my clients is that, gosh, we're coming back in person and either A, it's hard to figure out how to be around each other right now. You know, I sit on a plane, it's like, gosh, you're really close to me. <laughs> we used to be like that, but now we're not. And some people are still not comfortable with, um, for a variety of reasons, their own health, their own uh, commute, you know, we've got commutes again. So I think the most important thing um, that I've been recommending and that I continue to work at is doubling down on getting to know your people all over again. And you cannot overstress the importance of building relationships right now, even if you have to back off of your budget, uh, you know, ex expectations or production outcomes, you've got, you cannot overstress your people because it's really hard to hire people. I mean, we all know that. Um, and so we've got to keep the good people that we have. How are, how are the companies you're dealing with getting people to come back to the office and integrating them back in and making that connection and maybe they should be bringing some of the animals to visit the offices <laughs> or allowing them to bring their dogs in if the dogs are well behaved. Yeah, you know, yes. I mean, some of my clients were literally doing team building events outside or at local zoos and aquariums so that we can get back to the basics and get to know each other. And, you know, just like animals used to join in on Zoom meetings all the time, whether it's my cat sitting on my lap or the hippo from Cincinnati Zoo, you know, that's a thing. Um, but, you know, they're they're really making sure that they can be intentional about it, which is really smart. And, you know, the other thing that I love too is I think people are so much more, um, raw and transparent about the reality, whether that's the psychological safety or the mental health, or just, you know what, like I have to go because I have to take my cat to the vet. Like we didn't say that before the pandemic. We just made up all these excuses because we didn't want to be seen as not as committed. And now work-life balance, I mean, resiliency, that part of my book, those last three chapters, that is the piece that every time I talk to clients, they're saying like, we need to talk more about what that really means. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that too. 
um, <laughs> a little further into the show. But what's your definition of leadership? Leading change. As leaders, leadership is all about leading change. If you're not leading change, you're not leading. Everything else follows from that. Is there a leader that you particularly admire or, or a few leaders and why? I particularly, you know, when I think about that, I think about leaders who are different than me, um, who can, you know, use less words, who can speak quieter, who can get to the point much quicker than I can. Um, and I and I appreciate and admire those leaders because I'm always learning from them and I need them on my team when I need to get things done. But uh, I just, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> And I'm so glad they do because we need leaders. Like my son and my daughter, right? My daughter's like me. Talk, 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 talk. Lots of ideas, loud. My son is just, I, I give me three words and I can accomplish the same thing. That's amazing. And is there any leaders that you've observed in business that we would know that you say, you know, I, I really think that they're really good at imparting their vision or leading people or getting people to go to the next level? Is there anybody you see or even have experience? Um, yeah, you know, that's a good question. I mean, probably, you know, in, in the in the conservation zoo and aquarium world, I mean, it's, it's one of the people that people are most, uh, one of the leaders many people are probably familiar with is Sylvia Earle, who's, who's, we call her her deepness. She's well into her 80s now. You know, she was a pioneering woman in many, many, many arenas. But what she's amazing at, I think, is she just wears her passion on every sleeve. You can't talk to her without being inspired about why she's worked hard at what she does. And she doesn't shy away from being passionate about it and, and pushing the envelope and not caring if people don't have the same passion. And so I admire that uh, in leaders. And so I think that's, yeah, that's the best example I can think of about someone who would we would all know at this point. Well, what's it take to run a zoo, by the way? What what kind of skill set do you need to run a zoo? And do you notice it's the same skill set at running uh, a company? And some people think that they are working in a zoo, even if they're not animals. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I just um, facilitated a panel two weeks ago with three president and CEOs. It was the president and CEO of Georgia Aquarium the um, president and CEO of uh, the Florida Aquarium in Tampa and the executive director, the CEO in Detroit Zoo, and actually also the um, president and CEO of Denver Zoo. He was peripherally involved, couldn't be there in person. But I asked them that question. Um, and one, it was interesting because they all came from original areas of expertise that were different. One was a vet, one was an education person with their doctorate, uh, one was PR, television, marketing. <laughs> and so they came from totally different backgrounds, but how do you lead at that highest level, leveraging your own area of expertise? And what was interesting is that they always leveraged it in the same way. So no matter what their original expertise was, they were leveraging their communication skills that they built through those original areas of expertise. Because when you're working in a zoo and aquarium, you know, you have all the people and then you add in all of these animals <laughs> that may you know, need their own management. And, then, and some zoos and aquariums have rides. So you're adding in roller coasters and trains and X, Y, Z. The public has a different type of uh, expectation. Some zoos and aquariums are private run. Some are government run. Some are foundation run. Some are combination. So it's, it's like you throw all the pieces in the air <laughs> and go, hey, Here's an organization, but I always say when you work at the intersections of at the intersection of animals and people, you never know what's going to happen. And so it takes it takes a an, uh, it takes a certain skill set. Um, but at the end of the day, running a zoo aquarium is as much about building relationships in the community, whether it's local or global, um, just like any other business. 
In, in the book, you say there's three leadership circles, change, teamwork, and resilience. Why did you pick those three? Because I think the easiest thing to learn from nature is what I think leadership is all about, which is change. You know, nature is always changing. And I think by definition, nature is super comfortable with change because that's what it's dealing with. The weather is always different. The sunset's always different, et cetera. And somehow as humans, we get way more comfortable when change is not you know, around us all the time, but that's just not the reality. So how can we take these change lessons from nature and put it into our leadership skill set? But in order to lead change, you have to lead people. And it doesn't matter if they work for you, they work for the local community, they are all volunteers, it doesn't matter. Um, but in order to lead people effectively, you have to have personal resilience. Without personal resilience, you will not be able to show up and do your best work. Uh, so those are like the three-legged stool, the three pieces of you know water, food, shelter. You take one away, everything goes away. I think the resilience part, and we're going to talk more about this, is the thing that people um, worry about most, especially with people of the 21 to 35 generation, that they're not as resilient as prior generations and how to make them more resilient uh, in order for them to succeed. Have, have the resiliency in animals changed over the years? Are they less resilient now or more resilient because of how, how the climate and people have changed? Because we're getting closer to animals. Like we're seeing more bears showing up and eating people's cupcakes in their house. <laughs> right, because we're moving closer to the bears. The bears are like, great, I'll take the cupcake. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think... The way I want to answer that is by saying, I think animals are exactly the same in that, to me, resilience is energy management. It's not just about self-care. It's about how you're ramping up for that big presentation and how you're ramping down. And so animals, when it's time to take a break, when it's time to rest, when it's time to hibernate, whatever that is, like they just do it. They don't fit it in on the weekend. They don't stay late and let everybody else leave early and you're the last one at the office. They don't overthinking it, think it when they're resting and think, gosh, I wish I would have like, you know, attached, uh, you know, attacked that problem differently today. They just do it because on some level, they know if they don't, they, they literally can't survive. Like they can't find the food the next day or grow what they need to or nurture their young, whatever that is. And so animals and resilience, it's like the most basic <laughs> piece of being an animal. And that's why I, I, I put it last in the book. Like, look, like this is not a this is not a nice to have. It's not like I'm nicely suggesting it. I'm reminding you that you are an animal and biologically, you're gonna slow down. It's your choice. <laughs> put resilience in proactively or reactively. Uh, it's it's good to observe these things because it makes you think even further about what you need to do, how you personally need to adjust uh, from watching this. I like the anecdote about the giant Pacific octopus. Can you tell us a, that short story and what we can learn from the octopus? Yeah, but let me turn the table on you for a second. Tell me why that resonated with you. Well, I kind of thought um, it was interesting about, you know, it seems like the octopus actually thinks strategically. Um, and that's one of the things I thought was interesting. And then I've seen actually octopus kill sharks, which is also one of my questions here mm -hmm. about sharks themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's what uh, fascinated me about these giant octopuses that, that they seem to have kind of an agenda uh, <laughs> and, they, and they thought about stuff. 
and they uh, are smart about how they're using their tentacles. And these things are kind of long lasting unless humans ac accidentally scoop them up in uh, when they're fishing. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks for letting me. <laughs> I'm always interested how things, you know, relate and resonate with people because, you know, the story that you're referencing um, is when I was talking to some volunteers at an aquarium I was working at and they were having a meeting and and like literally walked the octopus into the meeting um, because the octopus is a really smart animal. I mean, what I've read is that they're as smart as a cat. I don't know if that, I don't know how to... <laughs> I don't know why they use the cat as a comparison, um, but they can learn. You know, there's studies where, you know, one octopus can have a crab in a jar and the other octopus can be literally watching through a plexiglass part of their habitat and watch how the octopus unscrews the, the lid of the jar. And, you know, and, and, and then this octopus does it in half the time, just as humans would. And so, and in aquariums, octopus have been known to like sneak into tanks next door to eat fish. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've had to figure out how to get them not to do that. Um, and so, uh, and octopus are also fascinating because they're an invertebrate. I mean, basically if they can find a hole as big as their beak, that's the only hard part in their body. So you got a six foot animal and they can squeeze through a tiny hole. So it's the ingenuity, right? It's the, it's the intelligence and the ingenuity and how you can take that. I mean, one of my favorite things about lessons from all animals really is how unassuming or how little we might expect from an animal and then you go oh you can actually do that like how many times do we do that as people and leaders we look at people and we make assumptions based on whatever you know nose piercings degrees that they have where they grew up whatever that is and then they say something or they do a project and you're like huh maybe i shouldn't have been so quick yeah that was my my english bulldog passed away a year ago in may and i swear she was smarter than we are she knew how to manipulate us in ways that you think there's got to be something going on there because <laughs> uh -huh. and she would try different tactics um before she uh tried you know she would try one thing after another it had to show some level of intelligence to how yeah. to overcome whatever that may be to go and, and and get you to do what she wanted you to do Absolutely. used to say that she was the serviced dog because we were servicing her <laughs> Yep, absolutely. You quote a study from Harvard that 85% of success comes from having good, soft, and people skills. Do animals have these, and which types of animals have the best soft skills, and how do they use them? You know, I love that study because it emphasizes that no matter how technical our jobs are, that we need leadership and other quote unquote soft skills. So the first thing I wanna say is that I'm really adamant. I like when people talk about soft skills as essential skills, because we seem to put this on the nice to have, and it's not. Um, we need these kind of skills and it leads to job success. And then from the animal way of, of thinking, you know, I would say some animals, maybe like millipedes, right? Or these insects and or spiders, you know, maybe they don't have the, the, the typical soft skills, essential skills as we would define them. Um, but as they you know, increase in order of interacting with each other or necessary survival skills. When when you look uh, habitat based, like at a big coral reef, you know, there's just as much that animals need to think or react or instinctually um, be with each other as there is about the technical side of, you know, how do I find the animal that I want to eat or how do I figure out where I'm going to lay the eggs? I mean, both are as important. Yeah, I, 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 there was... 
what was that? I was in Romania and I saw these nests from uh, what's what's the um, birds that supposedly bring you children? Oh, the storks? Yeah. Those <laughs> nests are like condominiums. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I was just sat there just staring at these and they were in one light pole after another, like in this one town. <laughs> it was like half the town was storks. And I wondered how they ended up picking that area. Why did they move together so closely, like you mm-hmm. know, from one block to the next? Mm-hmm. And how did they figure out how to construct these things that stay through any storms, rain, snow, whatever it is, and they yeah. don't break apart? Yeah. You know, and depending on the animal species, some of that you're learning from, you know, the parents, if you will, of, of the of the uh, animals. But some animal species like sea turtles we were talking about earlier, like the sea turtle lays her nest and she's gone. Like a hundred baby sea turtles will hatch and they are on their own. I mean, so talk about like leaning into your instinctual nature and figuring out how to survive. And that's, you know, also when we were thinking about leadership, right? There's some leadership skills we're learning all the time from the people around us, our mentors, our parents, our books, all of those things. And then there's times when it's like, well, A, they're not here. I'm going to have to make the decision on my own. But B, even if they weren't here, if they were here, the buck stops with me. Like it's time. Like I'm just going to figure it out. If I run into a ghost crab on the way and I need to adjust, well, I will. Uh, And so how are you balancing that in your leadership journey? So the sea turtle leaves after it hatches the eggs, it just walks away. Yeah, yeah, she comes up on shore, she she arduously crawls back through the sand into the ocean, and there's a hundred-ish sea turtle hatchlings. The average rate of survival is maybe one out of a hundred will survive to adulthood. And the amazing part of that story is that that surviving adults, if you will, from that nest, the females will come back to the beach from which they were hatched to lay their nest again. I mean, there's no way they know how to do that unless it's imprinting in the mag. They're literally following the magnetic forces of the earth. Like they're not getting told what to do. I mean, they're relying on instinct and purpose. And that is hugely motivating to me as we're going through our lives and our leadership journeys. But that's probably, is is that the, one of, one maybe the only or one of the few where the mother doesn't stay to protect the child? No, I mean, reptiles is pretty common. Um, you know, sometimes like like alligators, you know, if, you, if you're if you here with me in my home state of Florida, you might hear alligators uh, making noise if we get too close to where their eggs are. But very often reptiles are, you know, they're not motherhood or fatherhood figures, if they're well. The, the young are, are on their own, much different than, you know, spiders. You wouldn't necessarily think about spiders as motherhood figures, but many spiders, like the big spider I write about in my book, I know we're going to talk about that, right. but that spider will carry their young on their back. I mean, that's totally different. So it's different, right? Like as mammals, um, we, we only have like one or two kids per cycle. That's why sea turtles have a hundred at per cycle because they're not going to take care of them. So they need more turtles to uh, increase the chance that someone's going to survive to adulthood. But it, uh, clearly they're not giving their kids out trophies just for showing up, right? <laughs> That's true. No participation trophy. <laughs> yeah, right. And and if, if we saw a hundred of them being hatched, could humans get that hundred and have all hundred live or or some are just going to die no matter what? <laughs> you know, so down in Florida, I was working one summer with with the sea turtle program, and I brought my dad out to the beach, and we were releasing some sea turtles that had been taken to the lab for a little bit. Because when they get 
when they hatch, sometimes they don't come out of the nest. They need some help. Sometimes I've been to sea troll nests. They just get eaten by red ants. You know, as soon as they climb up to the top of the sand, then ghost crabs, birds, they're, I mean, it's like, it's like white castle burgers, right? Like little uh -huh. snacks, right? But my dad, we went going to the beach and, and we're releasing these hatchlings. And I said, dad, we are releasing these hatchlings and you are not allowed to touch them. No human interference um, at this point. And, you know, they're protected. And he's like, I'm not doing that. If, if I watch that little hatchling and there's a ghost crab that's going after that, I am going to get the ghost crab. <laughs> like, okay, fine. I'm not going to stand in your way. I get it. It's hard, but he's one of those parents. That's a <laughs> helicopter parent. <laughs> I know. Like, dad, you can't do that. He's like, ah, just watch me. <laughs> yeah. So you write about every business and successful person needs to observe, adapt and change. And, and you talk about mangroves aren't, aren't animals, but plants. And by looking at the roots, which grow in crazy directions, uh, as I saw pictures of it, but seem finally fixed, they seem fixed into the ground, like very firm, like, a, you know, a hurricane is not moving these things. Yeah. Uh, what's your takeaway and, and what could businesses learn from this plan? Because businesses are like that. They're, you know, especially the bigger the business, they're like all kinds of structures, all kinds of products, you know all going in different directions. So what, what can we learn from the mangrove? Yes, so mangroves teach us as business leaders that we need a process that is transparent and grounded and finite, especially when it comes to the change. And that change could be internal, you know, how we're restructuring our own organization. That change could be external, the change we're trying to lead. But if you want this organization to stick around, literally, you've got to be transparent as far as how people are participating in the process, how they are giving their insight, who the stakeholders are, how, what is the feedback loop through that? How are you benchmarking where you're starting before you build the plan? I mean, we just we just do all the time. Like we're we're plotting ahead and plotting ahead. We don't spend enough time benchmarking where we are now before building and executing the plan in the middle. And then we don't often think strategically as far as, far as how we're communicating. And I don't just mean like rollouts of strategic plans. We do that very naturally, but we just have a team meeting. Like let's just have a team meeting and, and give you all updates. Like oh wait a minute who is in that meeting, who needs to do what, what's the action steps, because they're not the same. Um, I, I mean, the worst thing in the world is to get people together, like, we're just going to have an update meeting, like, no, like, first of all, you're paying all those people to be in the room. Do you really just want to update them on information? No, chances are you want to update them so that they can apply it, they can make a decision, something. You've got to be really intentional and deliberate about communicating that because people are busy and they don't always know how you want them to interpret the information and how they're supposed to execute on it. And then sometimes it's not about taking action. It really is just update and awareness. Well, then that really is probably an email. Um, so mangroves show us, I mean, because they literally, literally, mangroves create Habitat. They create habitat. They're building out into the sea. And gosh, is it hard to be a tree living in salt water? Really, really hard. So it is really hard as organizations to pioneer through and power through change. But if you don't do it strategically and intentionally with a three-step process, and in my mind, I've got a three-step process, whatever your process is, um, it's not going to stick around. You're going to be back to floundering. And just like if I were to cut down the mangroves on the Florida shoreline, that shoreline washes away. It literally washes away. And so will your change initi initiatives. They will not stick. I'm very impressed with the mangrove, I have to say. <laughs> After reading your book, I'm like looking this stuff, I'm thinking, geez, how does this thing 
uh, holds so strong, just like bamboo is yeah. better than steel. You know, you just can't break it. it. It's amazing. I mean, one of the best compliments I got from someone who read my book said, I was kayaking this weekend and I will never look at a mangrove the same again. I'm like, yay, because I love them. I love them. Also, they're super easy to identify. So that's really good for me because I'm terrible at identifying trees. But mangroves are super cool. Everyone thinks of sharks as apex predators, but I've seen, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, giant octopus choke them out and certain types of whales are known for being predators of sharks. Is there anything businesses can learn about how to defend against the apex predator? <laughs> the first thing I would say is that don't often fear the apex predator. So those leaders, those initiatives, those times when you just assume or the aura is such that we just like step back. Well, as you just said, you know, the sharks, the whales, the octopus, like there's a lot of animals that can take that apex role. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing is they need, they exist for a reason. I mean, it's just like the forest fire. Like I'm not really happy when fire comes through and it kills off some things that I was, you know, wanting to go see grow, but new stuff comes behind it. So sometimes being around apex predators is painful. Um, but someone's got to make really hard decisions. And then behind that comes the opportunity to regenerate and regrow. So if you are the apex predator, you've got to be really, you know, conscientious on how you're coming off. Um, but be, uh, you know, we need you too. Uh, businesses don't grow and ideas don't come if everyone is, you know, lobsters crawling across the coral reef together, you know, following each other. We need lobsters too, but we need apex predators. Well, for the lobster, we are the apex predator. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> With butter on it, yeah. <laughs> and what sharks, why are they constantly in the state of motion? And what does that mean to us as well? Because I think that's kind of interesting. That is interesting. So the, the so so the shark species that are in a constant state of motion, not all are, so like nurse sharks, as an example, they lay on the ground. But the reason why the shark species that are in a constant state of motion are doing that is because that's how they breathe. If they're swimming through the water, then the water is moving over their gills. And if they were to stop moving, they would quite literally um, drown, if you will, in the water. And so I think that is more about the assumptions, you know, we're watching people, you know, as much as we're talking about resilience and we're saying, you know, we've got to slow down and we've got to do this and got to do that. And you watch some people and they just don't, or they don't do it the way that we think should be done, but it doesn't mean it's not working for them. And so how can we learn about everybody's individual resilience needs and make space for that if we have people on our team as leaders um, or be a cognizant about uh, what they individually need without making assumptions and judgments. You wrote about diversification and biological necessity for organisms to survive and thrive in the world. How can businesses learn from that common sense fact to positively impact their own businesses? <laughs> Diversity is simple, but not easy. That's what I would say. Um, it's simple for me to say to everyone, you know, look outside, like, obviously, there are different species around. There are different birds around. There are different uh, mammals, squirrels, chipmunks, whatever that is. You look at the savanna in Africa. There's, uh, you know, giraffes and cheetahs and uh, zebras, etc. So it is simple for me to say the world exists and is healthy as an ecosystem because of the diversity of species and the perspectives that they bring and the functions that they have. It's not easy to implement um, for many, many reasons um, that people are 
already thinking about and we won't get into now, but it doesn't mean it's not worth the struggle. Uh, and you don't have, to, and sometimes we get worried about um, what that will, how that will shift in our organization or why we need it. Well, we do need it because of the diversity you can see out in nature. Um, but there's a, there's a difference between being safe and not comfortable. Like you can have a safe environment and think about how to increase or change your diversity, even though it's going to be uncomfortable. And that's where growth happens. You write about how termites and giraffes uh, don't know each other as they uh, know each other as they play a vital role in providing each other with nutrients, which I thought was interesting. You relate mm -hmm. how a board of directors or someone similar in terms of because of the diversity of experiences and education and knowledge. Uh, please tell us where the leader can learn from this symbiotic relationship from the giraffe <laughs> and the termite. Yeah, were you aware of giraffes and termites together? No, I was not. I was not <laughs> at all. And I thought, well, I had to read that twice. <laughs> yeah, you know, I read a scientific study. There was an article published about how um, researchers had gone to the African savanna and they noticed that, you know, everything was relatively brown and arid and dry. And then there were these, these circles, these areas of greenery. And when they researched that, they realized that underneath this greenery were termite uh, colonies. And then as they watched how the animals interacted, they saw giraffes coming over. So the termites, of course, are breaking down all of this, um, you know, dead and decaying. Uh, wood and, and plant matter. And then the giraffes are coming over and they're eating some of this before it's dead and decaying. But of course, they're having urine and feces. And so that is supporting this ecosystem. So while gir giraffes and termites don't necessarily interact with each other, they need each other because their um, physical actions have created this oasis, these little oases of greenery and life um, around uh, the African savanna that's typically dry. And so, you know, when you're looking at that in a business, I mean, when I'm talking to people who either want to get more experience or move up the food chain or figure out their own skill set, et cetera, I'm constantly recommending to them to join a board of directors, join a committee, volunteer to use your skill set in a new way for something you care about. But the boards of directors um, that I've been around my entire career, and I believe the whole function of boards of directors is to bring diverse skill sets and perspectives to whatever organization it is. And so by default, you've got you know, community members, sometimes it's longtime volunteers, sometimes it's, uh, you know, current CFO for, I don't know, a Bank of America, you know, whatever that is, sitting in the same room, focused on the same task. And what a cool thing that is. And so that's how we make businesses stronger. But that's how we make our leadership stronger is learning how to interact with those people and, and, uh, and using your skill set. So I, I love boards of directors as examples and and some of them I've been involved with are awesome some of them have been so hard for me to figure out how to participate on but I, you know I've learned and grown every time I've been a part of a boards of directors or every time I've worked with them some people feel their boards of directors are termites so <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah or they're giraffes and they got their head stuck in the clouds not being, <laughs> and I think you see with nonprofits a greater cross-section of diversity as opposed to corporate boards where it would be smarter to be more diverse and studies show it's smarter to be more diverse, but they pick, tend to pick people like themselves or people that they can control. That's, that's true. That's true. And I would, you know, and on all of fairness, I would say, you know, boards of directors at nonprofits have their fair share of work to do too, <laughs> to diversify. Yeah, of um, course. But, 
but uh, you know, you, you have to, right? And and maybe it's I don't maybe it's easier, maybe it's not. But it just seems like boards of directors with built-in term limits and things like that, like just start someplace. <laughs> if we can't hire folks and recruit folks and stuff like that, let's start with boards. That's right. Um, they say elephants are among the smartest animals. What's your observation about elephants' ability to build community so their group can succeed? Because they seem really good at building community and taking care of each other and working in a positive way. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of elephants because they're a matriarchal society. So of course I'm going to be <laughs> a champion of of that as well. You know, I, yeah, I think elephants are a great example of you know an animal that needs a lot of space, and so they know what they have and and that they um, and they've needed a lot of protection certainly uh, over the years. But that yeah, there's a way that they interact from the young to the old. I mean, talk about really not even being afraid of all these different generations that we are working with now in the workplace, right? You know, every uh, age and range of elephants have their place as they are moving through uh, the savannah. And that is a great example of how that works well um, and can work well in organizations. You wrote about being a, a parent and seeing a spider that was as big as your son's head uh, at your home in Florida and how, how you went from the view of the spider with wonder when you were a kid and even when you were in college, uh, yeah. as you would, uh, but that you view changes now, you, your view has changed now as a parent. Uh, mm -hmm. What did you learn about how to handle fear from the animals you studied? And what did you learn about how to handle, animal, handle fear in a way that it works for them and does not paralyze them? <laughs> I wrote about spiders when it comes to why and how people fear change, because I think as leaders, sometimes we become uh, annoyed or derailed, or we just play and don't understand it. You know, we just, you know, sometimes when I've either worked with companies or now I work with them from the outside and I hear it, right? Um, well, that person's not going to get on board because, you know, they, they, prefer the way things are done now, or this person doesn't really like participating in this process. And, and so we, we, we want to push things forward. And sometimes we miss the opportunity, um, not only to get their ideas on board, but also you're going to end up with people who are going to drag the process down and drag the implementation down. And when you think about it from the level of fear, certainly there are many reasons why people may not participate in a change process, but sometimes it's just good old fashioned fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's fear of added workload. It's fear of, I don't trust you leader. You're new. It's, I don't trust you consultant. I don't trust whatever that is. Or yeah, we brainstormed all the, these ideas last year and nothing came of it. <laughs> and all of these are valid. And so when you think about spiders, I love spiders. As you said, Mark, I'm a super huge fan of spiders, but even me, even me, when I walked in that house and saw a, a spider as big as my son's face, this, that immediate reaction was like, <gasps> nope, nope. And I very deliberately went back outside. I didn't kill a spider, as some people might have. I didn't rehome it. I just let it have its space. I just gave it its due. And are there opportunities as leaders for us to say, okay, let me, I recognize it. Let me just recognize this fear and call it what it is. Because what scares you, Mark, may not scare me at all, you know, about fear about that process. And that is really important to recognize and give validity to, because then that person feels seen and heard and safe. 
Um, and so that's what spiders mean to me and continue to remind me. It's I call them nature's yellow light when it comes to change. It's nature's yellow light. It's not don't stop the change process, but don't barrel on through because there's something that you should be paying attention to if you see that, see that fear pop its head up. I always think with fear, the more you study whatever that is that scares you, the less fear you have of it. It's it's like they say, it's always about the fear of the unknown. And, mm -hmm. and that's always the case. Um, mm -hmm. Primates are always talked about as being smart, protective, and tribal. What makes them special? And is there anything they do that is unique that leaders should consider in emulating? <laughs> I think we like primates because they're literally genetically so close to us. You know, I think watching them and, and how they create tools, I think watching how they interact with their, their own offspring, watching how they interact with guests, whether you're, you know, walking through the jungles of Uganda or whether you're walking through your local zoo and are interacting with those, the primates. So I think we identify with them and we can uh, learn from them because they are so similar to us, you know, personally, um, I'm always going to advocate for the animals that we don't um, identify so closely with because I think it's much such more, as. well, um, such as naked mole rats, uh, such as, such as sea cucumbers, um, you know, these animals that sometimes we are like, huh, we can't, I don't, I don't even know if that's an animal, right? We go to the ones that we're familiar with. And so as leaders, like, what are those opportunities? Like I always advocate, like when the next time you're at a conference or you have, you know, a, a car ride and you need something to think about, like listen to a podcast or sit in a, an environment and listen to a presentation that you literally know nothing about the subject matter, like literally, like how to create sushi or, you know, how to, uh, you know, whatever it is, design a marketing plan for a uh, tech firm in Silicon Valley, right? Do that because you get in that, like, oh, I, I don't know any of this jargon and it, it gets you off of your comfort zone and so that's why like i love primates i'm so glad you're we're talking about primates but then what are those animals that oh i didn't know i could learn from that too yeah and and your book is full of that uh throughout the book what groups of animals form the best and strongest foundation that makes them appear as if they are a united team wolves are certainly seem to be one of them yes wolves um but also coral so corals literally are animals. They're little upside down jellyfish living in little limestone cups. And they literally construct together the actual physical foundation of a coral reef. And to me, that's the best example of teamwork uh, because without each other and <laughs> the different species of corals, uh, uh, everything would fall apart. There'd be no coral reef. So that's what happens in your organizations is um, needing to pay attention to the teams and how they're functioning in order to make sure they're healthy. I had never heard of a sea cucumber before, and I love cucumbers, <laughs> uh, which is why I love interviewing authors of all these new things that you constantly learn from you guys. You talk about how sea cucumbers adapt and have defenses and their resiliency. Please talk about that and what organizations can learn from them. <laughs> so sea turtles are, are related to sea stars. If you've ever been in an aquarium or gone snorkeling or diving, you may have noticed these sausage-shaped creatures on the ocean floor. And sea cucumbers are one of these innocuous animals that may or may not be even assumed to be an animal. But if a predator, a fish, let's say, comes over and tries to eat this sea cucumber, it can eviscerate, which is literally throw up its, throw up its own guts. And either the fish will be 
annoyed enough or grossed out enough, it'll swim away. But on the off chance it doesn't and it decides to eat the guts of the sea cucumber, the sea cucumber can literally regrow its own guts, literally. And so I use the sea cucumber as my analogy, but also the animal that motivates me when I'm faced with those resiliency challenges as a leader, when, I mean, all of us have been in that place, right? You just feel sick to your stomach, literally, because something you have to report into your owners or the numbers don't look good this quarter, or you've got to let a lot of people go in the pandemic, and now you've got to rehire people. And that's super stressful. I mean, there's so much. Um, but we always talk about gut health. I mean, it's all over the, the, um, the chatter waves right now. And that's true. And it's true of leaders. Like what is your gut health? I mean, like literally trusting your gut. Sometimes your gut needs to be checked a little bit, but 95% of the time you've got to trust your gut. You, you've got to make the decision yourselves and know that if that meeting doesn't go wrong or doesn't go well, or that person like doesn't really appreciate <laughs> being let go the way you tried to so gently that you literally can live to see another day. And you are wired, like wired to be that way, wired to not just survive, but to thrive. That's hugely motivating, comforting. It's an unbreak. I call them unbreakable laws. It's always true. And so how are you going to get to the other side and live to see another day? Well, just rest in the fact that you can, and now put those parameters in place in order to uh, get yourself through that tough situation. You write about the cheetah, which is the fast, I didn't know this, but is the fastest animal uh, and it runs 70 miles per hour. Wow. Uh, and I'm amazed that there's no NFL team called the Cheetahs. Uh, <laughs> and you use them as an example of an animal that keeps running like a typical entrepreneur, entrepreneur but it isn't sustainable. So tell us what, why you picked the Cheetah and, and running at 70 miles an hour. Uh, it, it sounds like a blessing to me. I'd like to be able to run 70 miles an hour. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when we, if you were to Google cheetah right now, chances are what's going to come up is pictures or articles about how fast the animals are, because we're always talking about that. And think about it as entrepreneurs, as leaders, as business owners, you know, you when you're talking to your friends, I mean, people, hi, hey, how you doing, Mark? Well, you're either saying like, gosh, I'm so busy. I got yeah. all this stuff going on, right? Or yeah. like, I'm totally fine. Everything is fine. Okay, probably these are the extremes. <laughs> yeah, you are busy all the time. There's chances you're going to rest. And is everything fine? Maybe not. <laughs> like you got, you got to be right in the middle. But I like to talk about cheetahs because it is that example that not only are cheetahs, like they're literally built for speed. Like you look at that body shape, everything about them is built for speed, but speed for like 60 seconds. And then they're done. They're lying in the shade resting. And if they don't, they cannot come back and run literally for survival in order to chase that animal down. So it's my way of thinking around, you know, when I have people do resiliency time studies of their own um, lives right now, you know, where are the resilience activities that you are intentionally putting into your day as leaders? Because it's not a question of if, it's a question of when you will slow down. How long does the cheetah have to rest after 60 seconds running 70 miles an hour? A long time. <laughs> I mean, they're not resting five minutes and getting back up. And they're so truly it's like an electric car. I mean, you drive it and then you got to wait 24 hours for that thing to recharge again. Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great analogy. I mean, the last time you saw cheetahs at the zoo, chances are they were not running. <laughs> they yeah. were hanging out. Yeah, wow. And and if they ran it, like could they be taught to run at lesser speeds and they would be able to run longer? I mean, 
That's a good question. Yeah, maybe if they're in their zoo, but biologically, that's how they're designed. That's they're, how they're wired. Boom. Yep. Sure. I mean, if you watch if you watch a video, you know, it's like you know, pace, 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 following their prey, explode, rest. And isn't that just like entrepreneurship sometimes, Mark? Like I'm ready, ready, ready. Let's go. Okay, time to yeah. rest. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Here, here's our last question. In the animal kingdom, are there CEO leaders? which maybe like the queen bee falls under this category that human leaders can learn from? I mean, is there, is there a corporate hierarchy in the animal kingdom? You know, we hear, always hear that the lion is the king. Yeah, yeah, gosh. Well, I, I'm gonna give you I give you kudos for asking me a question no one's asked me yet. I really like this question. Um, you know, I would say naked mole rats that we really haven't talked about, but they're a group of animals, mammals that work together just like a bee colony. And so certainly, yeah, in a bee colony, there's queens and, you know, you look at naked mole rats, they have similar um, hierarchy. But I would say the animal kingdom teaches us that there is not one type of uh, skill set or way of being that is definitive for a CEO. You know, I would say that because every animal in their own way can be in charge, if you will, like the red mangrove, I would say, you know, they're not an animal, of course, but they're the ones out in front. So sometimes the CEO is the one out in front. And sometimes the CEO of an organization is the one who's a steady, steady pace, just like those CEOs I talked about at the beginning, different original skill sets. So, um, you know, to me, it's leading in the way you were born to lead. The leading from the top means bringing your unique skill set with what your organization needs at that time to accomplish the goals that it's set out to do. And so align yourself with the animal that that speaks to you and, and then be that, be more of that. I have to tell you, people should buy the book. It was really fascinating. Uh, you know, you got like a few things in one. One was you learned a ton about animals and animals <laughs> you never even heard of before. And two, you got a lot of good insights about how to really build to be a successful leader and build a successful organization. So I thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. And uh, hopefully you won't have to take 25 more years to write the next book. That <laughs> you'll start having even better ideas that you're going to go and transform into uh, good business books for us to have you back on the show. So hope you have a great weekend. Uh, Hope everybody has a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you all next Friday. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.